Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome. Welcome to the uh, Tuesday edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thank you all so much for being with us today. I, I think anybody who's been watching the news, reading newspapers, uh, reading web news uh, in recent weeks has seen the long lines of uh, migrants uh, who are had been uh, huddled at the Mexican border to the United States, various uh, uh, points along the border, all awaiting the end of Title 42, which did come to an end on Friday. Um, those images have been used variously by Republicans and Democrats to portray different uh, uh, stories about what's happening at the border. Republicans, of course, say that President Biden's policies on the border are going to lead to massive hordes of people rushing uh, the border, trying to cross to get refugee status. Uh, Democrats say that, in fact, the White House has come up with some rules that ought to keep a little more order, although there are progressive Democrats who are faulting President Biden for establishing rules that uh, will not, in fact, allow perhaps enough refugees who deserve protection here in this country an opportunity to come into the country. Uh, it's a complicated story. There's a lot to discuss, and we're going to do it today. And fortunately, we have with us one of the country's leading experts on immigration, uh, immigration lawyer, uh, Charles Cook. Uh, Chuck, let me just, for, uh, as I introduce the rest of the panel, first say how glad I am that you're here today. Thanks for having me, Bill. I love talking about immigration, you know. <laughs> yes, I know you do, and we are so happy you are. Uh, Tamar Hallerman is my uh, regular Tuesday partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Tamar, it's great to have you here. And in just a few minutes after we've introduced the rest of the panel, I'm going to ask you to fill us in briefly on the latest in the Fulton County uh, DA's uh, efforts to figure out whether or not to indict uh, former President Trump and others for interfering with the uh, 2020 election. But in the meantime, thanks so much for being here. I think you're muted, Tamara. We're not hearing you. Apologies. Anytime, Bill. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> We're uh, also joined today by Kendra King Maman, political science professor at Oglethorpe University. Uh, Kendra, Always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for being here. So glad to be back again today. And we're joined by a veteran reporter, one of the best-known reporters in his part of the state, uh, Chuck Williams. He's now at WRBL-TV in Columbus, but for many years, Chuck was one of the most highly uh, uh, respected print journalists in Columbus. Chuck? Thanks for being with us. Greetings from West Georgia, Bill. Glad to have you here. All right, um, Tamar, before we uh, dig into immigration, uh, start by giving us an update on what's going on with the uh, uh, case, uh, uh, the special grand jury case. And, and I'll, I'll start 
by pointing out that some time ago, Drew Findling, one of Trump's attorneys, uh, filed a motion uh, in Fulton County Court asking that all of the results of the special grand jury's investigation, the report that they put together, the witness statements that they gathered, all of that be thrown out, uh, presumably because the whole panel was illegally uh, brought together by District Attorney Fonnie Willis. And this all comes before Judge Robert McBurney, who has overseen the special grand jury from the start. He uh, gave the Fulton County District Attorney's Office till yesterday to file a response to this request from the Trump people. And that response came in yesterday. Tell us a little bit about what Fonnie Willis's people are saying about the Trump uh, desire to wipe everything off the books. Sure. Well, let's start with the, the Trump filing, which came some two months ago. And one legal critic I spoke to described it as a throw everything at the wall to see what sticks kind of filing. But as you mentioned, it goes after everything in this investigation. It tries to disqualify Fonnie Willis and her office. It asks Judge Robert McBurney to step aside. It seeks to suppress the release of the special grand jury's final report and any evidence they might have generated. It questions um, the legality of special grand juries in general and says they're they're kind of unconstitutionally vague. Um, and recently, that motion was joined by Kathy Latham, who was one of the fake electors. Uh, she was the head of the Coffee County GOP and also involved when some data technicians uh, showed up at the elections office uh, to copy sensitive elections data. Um, so the two of them seeking to basically strip everything. The DA's office uh, had a deadline yesterday to respond, and they basically urged uh, Judge McBurney not to let this matter go on any further. They say it's not worth a hearing. Neither Kathy Latham nor Donald Trump uh, was a witness to the special grand jury. No one has been indicted in this case yet. Um, and basically, they argue that that the whole thing is flawed. And to, to give it any more attention than that is not worthwhile. Um, Trump's folks in their filing questioned some of the things that DA Willis said in media interviews, some posts she gave on social media. Um, she defended those statements, the DA, um, and also mentioned if they were so bothered by it, they could have spoken up when some of these postings and interviews happened years ago, but they did not. Um, and so they were very dismissive of, of these arguments. So it's in McBurney's hands to decide, first of all, whether to even hold a hearing at all, or whether to, uh, in fact, as the Willis people have asked, throw it out as being uh, not worthy of, of a hearing. Uh, and there is something kind of interesting about that, Tamar, since McBurney himself is a subject of the uh, complaint. They don't they want him thrown off the case, too. Yeah, they cite some comments that the judge gave to uh, my reporting partner and I and some other media outlets when there was a big hubbub around whether grand jurors could speak to the media. He kind of clarified what the rules were. They also cite some of his judgments kind of in the weeds stuff, determining whether the special grand jury was civil or criminal, which basically paved the way for out-of-state witnesses to be subpoenaed and come to Georgia to testify. Um, so far, it seems like Judge McBurney has ignored that part of Trump's request. Um, he issued this order basically laying out the timeline, which our assumption shows he's kind of sticking with it and just saying, no, this is insane. Um, but we'll wait to see. It's his decision to see if he wants to hold a hearing. Um, 
Obviously, we're waiting to see what the DA wants to do. She said she'll announce indictment decisions uh, between July 11th and September 1st. Um, if he does want to hold a hearing, will he hold it before July 11th? Um, will this be something that's punted into the future as, as we wait to see who is indictment, indicted? And what happens to this final report? We only saw portions of it back in February, but all the good stuff was redacted. Um, media organizations, including mine, have been pushing for it to be released. Um, what happens to it? He still needs to make a decision. Um, we assume he's waiting for the DA to announce his, her indictment decisions, but it's been later than I think a lot of people expected. So does he push for it to get released earlier? I doubt it, but that'll be interesting too. All right, Tamara, I really appreciate your filling us in on the latest. And, of course, the keys here continue to be this uh, time frame that Bonnie Willis has released, saying sometime between July 11th and the 1st of September, uh, we're going to announce whether we plan to uh, issue any indictments at all in our investigation. Uh, we'll keep track of that as it moves forward, of course. Chuck Cook, uh, let me turn to you to start the conversation about immigration. Um it, as I said in the opening, and certainly all of you on the panel are aware, uh, there has been enormous news media coverage of all of the thousands of people lining up to uh, get into the United States with the end of Title 42 on uh, Friday. And we'll talk about the fact in a minute that over the weekend, at least, the surge didn't develop the way uh, many people expected it would. But, Chuck, before we get there, let's just very briefly remind people about what Title 42 did. Title 42 is, was not new. Title 42 was, was uh, created many, many years ago, but during the COVID pandemic, uh, the Trump administration used it, because it was, it was created as a public health measure, used it to stop uh, migrants from crossing the border, staying in the United States while they watched and waited for their applications for uh, asylum to play out. They were kept south of the border. That order ended when the COVID pandemic emergency ended on Friday. Have I got that right? That, that is correct, uh, for the most part. I mean, the interesting thing about Title 42 is that it's named Title 42, which refers to the United States Code which is the code that governs the Centers for Disease Control. Uh, and, and the specific provision within Title 42 allows the director of the Centers for Disease Control to declare a public health emergency and disallow certain people from coming into the United States. President Obama famously used this to disallow people from coming to East Africa when we had the big Ebola outbreak at Emory. You know, everybody remembers that from a decade ago, and that was truly a decade ago. So presidents have used this before. But nobody's weaponized it the way that the Trump administration did and the Biden administration did, uh, which was basically after we were already full of COVID in America, to then put Title 42 into place and say, we can't let anybody in because they might bring COVID, which we already have. Um, and it was an interesting way to basically stop immigrants from coming to the country. But it, they did this, I believe, without truly understanding the the negative quasi-positive impact for individuals trying to come in. And this is this. Typically, when somebody crosses the border illegally, uh, they are issued and they're caught. 
they are issued a deportation order called an expedited removal, which bars them from coming back for five years. And they're given an opportunity to say, are you afraid to go back? If so, they can be detained while a hearing is being held. Well, during COVID, the government didn't want to detain anybody because it was dangerous detaining people in, in close quarters. So Title 42 allowed people to come in and try to do the same thing, but they did not then get tossed back out of the country with a deportation order. They could literally keep coming back over and over and over again. And some very wise uh, reporters did a, did a Freedom of Information Act request uh, about a year ago and found out that at least one guy had been coming 72 times and had been sent back. And he wasn't the only person like this, dozens and dozens of times. So it wasn't that they had 3 million different people coming in illegally, as they had probably 800,000 people coming in multiple times until they could come in. And what Title 42 was doing was doing away with our immigration laws. So the big hubbub that you saw in the media reporting at the border as if on midnight on Friday morning, hordes of people would storm the border like the Bastille uh, was simply never going to happen because immigrants understood that if they did that, then they would be subject to expedited removal would be detained and or deported immediately to their home country. So what you see now is an immediate reduction, at, at least by 70% by some reports, of people showing up at the border. Chuck, uh, I, uh, uh, Williams, it, it is fascinating that after uh, all of the scary uh, news stories that were reported, especially by conservative media, about the, just what uh, uh, Chuck Cook's talking about, the storming of the border, uh, things were relatively quiet over the weekend, although in the week before uh, Title 42 ended, there were a great many people who came across looking for uh, a sanctuary, looking to establish themselves as uh, refugees who deserved asylum. I think uh, uh, Secretary of Homeland Security Mayorkas talked about as many as 16,000 uh, people. But from a political point of view, I think it's safe to say the conservatives did not get what they wanted of this huge army of people rushing across the border. Chuck just explained it so well. I mean, I wish I could put that on a on a little timeline and just show it to anybody who asked me what happened. Because, you know, one of the things that I kept thinking as I watched the national media coverage leading into it and then the national media coverage coming out of it over the weekend was how did the media get this so wrong? I mean, you know, and then you see the the doomsday tweets from ultra conservative uh, members of Congress who basically were saying one in particular from the great state of Georgia were saying, hey, this is, you know, here it comes. And, you know, it just is somebody who doesn't follow this as closely as Chuck or others that do. It was just amazing to me that what I thought was going to happen, what I was being prepared to happen by the national media didn't happen. So, um, uh, Kendra, let me bring you into this conversation. And, and let me, as a starting point, and I do want to talk about the details of what now the rules are for asylum seekers, but let's just point out, the New York Times did a really uh, a very thorough piece and the, I think the AJC published it this morning 
on the number of times over the last two decades that Congress has tried to pass comprehensive immigration reform that would address all of these ongoing crises that continue to pop up, and there's simply no will for the two sides to get together and make it happen. Republicans have tried and failed. Democrats have tried and failed. And so in many ways, uh, Kendra, this just seems to me to be a failure of our uh, Congress uh, to actually do something positive about what was and has been a serious issue. Absolutely. I mean, I think when you look back to when Title um, 42 was first utilized, you know, or enacted in 1944, we've had opportunity over and over and over again to do this. But I, I, I think that um, the reason why neither side wants to come together is that if they were to come together and pass comprehensive immigration law, we lose one of our bread and butter, knee-jerk reaction political issues. And to do that, we'd have to find something else to divide our nation on. So it's it's almost like a no-brainer where both sides behind the scenes are winking at each other, like, you're going to block this, wink, wink. We're going to do it next time. And again, I think part of why um, the media is so um, hyper um, uh, talked about this is, again, we are gearing up for an election year. 2024 is going to be um, interesting, to say the least. And so to me, this was some pregame fodder that if we could get some screen grabs of, of, of people storming the grates, Armageddon, if you will, um, they'd roll those things out um, sometime next year. Kendra, I couldn't have said it better myself. This is such an animating issue for the bases of both parties. And Republicans, I mean, we saw with the rise of Donald Trump in 2016, he used immigration as perhaps the most powerful animating issue uh, for his folks. People thought he was crazy initially when he was talking about a border wall, but then you saw just how much that animated voters on the right um, and really helped lead him to office. Um, I think Republicans, again, are planning to use this as a huge issue in 2024 and having issues just like, or sorry, having images just like what Kendra mentioned of people storming the gates of, of all these blockages at the border. That's a powerful animating force for, for voters. Um, and I think just given how gerrymandered our districts are, you know, your, your biggest, um, competition is going to be in your primary. So if you're a Democrat, you're going to have people saying you're not liberal enough. If you're a Republican, you have people complaining you're not conservative enough. They are not incentivized to cut an immigration deal on the other side uh, or with the other side. These are complicated issues um, that touch on everything from border security to our business climate to foreign policy and foreign aid, what's going on in a lot of these countries of origin. Um, it's complicated and it's not sexy. And it would be a tough, tough vote for anyone. And frankly, no one wants to do it, especially if you're a member of Congress who has to look to your reelection in two years. Chuck Williams. One of the ways, and Chuck uh, Cook and I were talking about this before, that it plays in a place that's not a border town like Columbus in middle Georgia, is we have a detention prison in Stewart County just below us. And every week or so, a big old white plane lands at the Columbus airport, and I think it's called Ice Air, and buses pull out and they drive away, and we will get calls, I will get calls from my more conservative friends saying they're dropping more illegals off and they're coming into Columbus. And, you know, just that plane landing at the 
Columbus Airport, and that facility 40 miles south of us is a is a whole magnet point for this whole discussion. And Chuck knows more about that than I do. Well, the, the entertaining part is they're, they're flying them in to put them in detention to create jobs in Stewart County uh, is what is what they're actually doing. No, this this is it's obviously a, a massive political issue, and 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 there's just so much media attention on it because eyes were glued to it. It's it's like if an election's coming up, when is the next caravan on its way from Central America? Became a joke after a while. The caravan only oh, must be a political election coming up. There's a caravan coming. The reality is these are these are very complicated issues. Social media has made the, has made immigration more complicated. I mean, I don't only just I don't just see the politics. If I sit with people every day. Yesterday, I sat with a family who came from Peru, uh, who were telling me why they came from Peru and explaining why they wanted to seek asylum in the United States. And they had waited in Mexico for a week. They had processed at the border. They had sent them through. They gave them telephones for reporting purposes. They're reporting regularly to ICE. Uh, they have a hearing coming up. And I had to sit with them and tell them that the reasons that they left Peru were not reasons for which they are going to receive asylum in the United States. They had been a sold a bill of goods about what our asylum process actually is and who receives protection under our laws. And it's the first time anybody had ever told them the truth. And that's the sad part about a lot of the people coming in. And I can't tell you it's the majority or minority. There are true asylum seekers coming in and almost everybody coming in has a fear, but not everyone receives the protection of the United States. At, at the end of the day, this is a completely solvable issue. Ronald Reagan solved this issue 40 years ago. Um, but since then, Congress has really used this, as, as Professor Moment talked about, a political football. And the bill, there's a bill just passed the House that solves illegal immigration. Everybody read about that. But read that now because you will never read an article about that bill again because it's never going to become law ever. Uh, it's just <laughs> not. Um, and until right. both parties realize how good for America immigration is, and I want to conclude with this bill, a great study came out this morning from Cato that revealed that that 70% of, of the jobs filled since 1990 in our economy have been filled by immigrants or their children. 70%. That means job growth, employment growth, filled almost entirely by immigrants. Where would we be without immigrants? The, the factual information is so overwhelmingly positive, and yet it some people keep trying it in bad ways. It, to me, it remains astounding. All right, Chuck, before I, I uh, bring in the other panelists, uh, what did Reagan do that solved this problem? Remind us. Reagan fought with the Democrats to create an amnesty to legalize about just a little under 3 million at the time, massive number of undocumented immigrants. Now, Congress did it the wrong way. Uh, which ended up resulting in a lot more undocumented immigration. But Ronald Reagan understood that that lazy people don't walk across the desert and that immigrants that want to come here are the, exactly the ones that you want to have. Um, you know, Kendra, when I hear Chuck Cook talk about that, and when I hear the, the conversation we're all having about the fact that we're now focused on asylum seekers, and as Chuck Cook points out, He's got clients who have to prove that they come from a country of origin where they are in enough jeopardy they deserve asylum here. Um, it, it strikes me that it, 
we've gotten to a point. It used to be, as Chuck said, uh, that we welcomed immigration, that we wanted workers to come into the country. And now, it, instead of the Reagan era policies, um, we set up these rules where uh, you'd better have a reason for coming because you're in fear of your life, which is is not the same as welcoming immigrants into our country, Kendra. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, where immigrants are coming from has shifted. And so that has played also a politicized role in, in our disdain for immigrants. Immigrants are coming from more darker-hued nations. Um, and so that is that is not the European um, um, historical um, place of, of, of migration that we're accustomed to. And so when you have immigrants coming from Central and South America, you have um, um immigrants trying to come from Cuba, Haiti, you know, uh, different parts of Africa, we can in some ways create narratives around them, not only that um, support a, a belief that they're other, but also this belief that we're seeing pop up again, that there's going to be a rise in, in criminal activity, there's going to be a rise in drug trafficking, there's going to be a rise, you know, in, in all types of, you know, doom and gloom. And, and the reality is you see mothers with with kids on their back. You know, um, I, I read um, one of the articles where a mom, she scaled the wall, uh, shattered her foot. She's in a wheelchair and immobile for six months. And when they asked her, why did you do this? She said, because I have three kids back in Venezuela who are depending on me. Now, let me be very clear. We, we've got to um, look at reasonable um, uh, ways of, of uh, creating equitable asylum avenues, um, because we want to make sure we're not um, um, creating a bias for one group as opposed to the other. Um, yeah, at a certain point, we'll have to look at um, how do we do this even um, in terms of, of, of the states that that um, immigrants are seeking to come into. But at the end of the day, the reason why there's a hostile environment to this is because we don't want to uh, be generous in our giving and or our thinking as it relates to the fact that our country is benefiting from these people. And when you have a public display of hostility, what it does, and I've seen it happen personally and firsthand, it increases the abuse, um, even uh, unfair labor practices that happen behind the scenes with a lot of these vulnerable populations. Tamar, uh, let's just pick up on Chuck Cook's talking about the bill that Republicans in the U.S. House passed. Just a couple of points that they they really what they did in this bill was to return us to the Trump era uh, uh, rules that um, uh, governed what was happening with immigration. So one of the things they wanted to do was continue building the border wall, uh, the Trump's border wall. Uh, and the other, probably the other mo more significant uh, part of this was they wanted to reestablish the Trump uh, mandate of remaining in Mexico, not allowing people to cross the border uh, to seek asylum. They can they can file for asylum, but then they have they're they're stuck in Mexico. And as Chuck points out, this isn't going anywhere. But it's interesting that the House. Uh, is uh, kind of reaffirming everything that the Trump administration did in terms of uh, preventing immigration from flowing forward. 
Yeah, another major provision of that bill is it would have mandated companies um, use E-Verify, which is a, a program, a, basically a database. You type in somebody's name and you can ensure that your employees are legally eligible to work in the United States, which would be a huge no-go if you're a farmer, for example, and you rely on many, you know, on farmhands, many of whom are undocumented. Um, and I mean, and it goes to show just how narrowly this bill passed and how long it took Speaker McCarthy to be able to get this over the finish line. It passed by 219 to 213 with, with a margin of only about two votes. Um, it took about four months of wrangling behind the scenes. Um, you have plenty of lawmakers from farm country, you have plenty of Republican lawmakers um, from border areas, and getting everyone on the same page uh, was almost an impossible task. So, I mean, it's a, a great victory for Kevin McCarthy and having something to bring to the table. Although, as Chuck Cook said, not something that's ever going to pass to the Senate. Um, unfortunately, with this being a presidential year coming up, um, I just think, as Kendra was saying earlier, the political benefits are too much right now to, to cut a deal. It, it kind of makes more sense for folks to be able to point to, this is what our policy is, but we're not going to be negotiating with folks on the other side. All right. I want to talk about uh, the needs of uh, of workers that are not being met because of our immigration policies. But I'm late for a break right now, so let me get that out of the way. We'll come back and discuss that aspect of immigration and other subjects on our agenda for today's show. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Chuck Williams of WRBL-TV, Kendra King-Mammon, Oglethorpe University, Chuck Cook, immigration attorney, and Tamar Hallerman join me uh, today. Chuck Williams, I want to start with you on this whole issue of, uh, of the labor force. Um, you know, we know that unemployment is at record lows in the United States, but at the same time, there are literally millions of jobs, economists tell us, that are unfilled. And, um, and so there are opportunities for immigrants allowed in this country uh, to go to work. And I'm curious, Chuck, especially down your way, where you have a lot of farmers in surrounding areas, just what's happening in terms of their ability to get migrant workers into their fields? Well, Bill, unfortunately, I don't know as much about that. That's a little out of our area, but it's clear when you look um, east of here and south of here with the peaches and stuff that it looks like we're going to have a pretty good peach crop coming right now. And I suspect that they're going to need those laborers, but I'm not as versed on that as I need to be. I apologize. Chuck Cook? Uh, thanks, Bill. Uh, uh, well, one thing is good is they're all leaving Florida. Um, so uh, there will be more people coming from Florida uh, up to Georgia. Uh, it's just like you don't learn from the lessons of your neighbors. It's like HB 87 redux all over again. 
11 circuits rule already ruled most of the stuff they just did is illegal. Um, but the reality is Florida, a lot of Florida workers are leaving. Uh, there are reports in Florida of job sites just empty, especially construction and, and, and farm job sites just empty. People just don't want to be there with the threat of that going on. But today we sit on an economy of almost 5 million open jobs, more than we have workers available. I think there's 11 million open jobs, 6 million people looking for work. We are 2 million workers short after the Trump administration of immigrants. So we, we actually didn't have 2 million, there were 2 million missing legal immigrants during that time because they slowed down legal immigration. And we see the effect of that today. So it's really interesting to think about a lot of these people that are coming through the border that are caught, and most of them are caught, that then apply for asylum. After an asylum application is pending for six months, they can get work permits. So there is a whole cadre of people, maybe a million people over the course of the next year that are going to have work permits for which there are already jobs for them to do. Uh, so people coming in now are actually helping us move our economy forward by filling the jobs that are already created for them, not to count, not to mention the ones that they will create by working in the United States, because it's not a zero, it's not a pie, right? It's just it's an ever-growing, it's an ever-growing bag of, of jobs. Chuck Cook, before I, I, I move on, I, help me understand something that I'm not clear on. What We're talking almost uh, uh, completely about asylum seekers. W what's happened to people who are trying to enter the United States without regard to whether they come from countries where they're in some danger or whatever, who are simply looking to build a better life for themselves and their families here in the United States and looking for a way to legally enter the United States. Have, is that mechanism gone completely at this point? I teach a whole class on that at Emory. Um, the, the, the system's broken. The system's absolutely broken. We, we are at max capacity in our, in our legal immigration system. So we have waiting lines now for some countries like India that extend to 75 years for them to legally immigrate to America through work, where they've already established that there are no qualified U.S. workers for their jobs. <clears throat> so the reality is by not fixing the legal immigration system, we, in, we increase the risk and the height of undocumented immigration because the demand is not going away. The system itself is literally broken. Uh, Kendra, before we get off the subject completely, I, I, I mentioned at the start of the show that, of course, we know conservatives have used, have weaponized immigration against Democrats. But we also, as I mentioned, have to point out that President Biden has been under fire from some of his own Democratic colleagues because there's a feeling that he, too, has put in place restrictions to immigration, a mechanism for how people can apply for asylum that, uh, in fact, are not going to bring enough people in to the country. And, and, I, and I turn to you on this, Kendra, because it just ex shows us how terribly complicated this is uh, politically. Obama was under pressure. He was, you know, uh, uh, it, it criticized continually for deportation of immigration of, of people seeking to stay in the country. Uh, clearly, Trump was under fire. Biden's under fire now. This goes beyond party and just shows us we are nowhere near to figuring out how to solve this problem, Kendra. 
I, I totally agree. And I, I think part of the challenge with the Biden administration is that um, the administration has been so clear and, if you will, even um, hyper liberal on certain issues. Um, and one would assume uh, that they'd follow suit um, on this issue of immigration and be a bit more um, open and lenient than they have been. And so uh, it's almost as if Biden is flip flopping on the issue. He's saying one thing and doing another, which leads to uh, greater confusion as well. But I also think the Biden administration is being strategic. Uh, they understand that if they're going to win this reelection because of some of the, the slip ups and and just, you know, whether he's falling off a bike or falling asleep at a church service. I mean, my goodness, that's a loud place to fall asleep um, because of some of the things that have happened um, that have gone viral. He understands he's got to get some of that center base, um, some of those undecided voters, those independent voters. So I think he's trying to uh, play in the middle and be a bit more conservative on this particular issue. Yeah, Tamara, that seems quite correct, because every survey, every poll of the issues that Americans care about uh, puts immigration way up, if not at the top, in certainly the top five, if not the top three. Yeah, I see this as a no-win issue for Joe Biden. I don't think there's much of a middle ground here. No matter what you're going to do in the middle, folks are going to be enormously unhappy with you, depending on who you're talking to. And we saw the last time Chuck Cook and I were on this show together a couple weeks ago, I want to say that the Biden administration was being sued by groups on the left regarding uh, his immigration policies. So no matter what, it's going to be a losing issue. And it's just so thorny and interdisciplinary that um, it's just, I don't know how any politician who expects to be reelected is going to be able to cut a deal on something like this in today's climate. All right. Well, I am sorry to say that as smart as this panel is, they and I together have not solved the problems with immigration <laughs> in this country. So let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back with uh, other items that we wanted to discuss on today's Political Rewind. Tamar Halderman, during the essentially three years of the COVID pandemic, um, states across the country uh, continue to enroll new people into Medicaid when they qualified. Um, but during that time, they did not continue to vet whether people who had already been enrolled uh, still met the conditions for remaining on Medicaid. And as a result of that, reporting in your paper points out that we now have Medicaid rolls that have, are close to 3 million people, 2.8 million people. Now that the pandemic emergency is over, Georgia, like every other state, is required to go back and look to see whether some of those people uh, no longer qualify. And they've begun that process here. It appears that as many as two, 300,000 people could lose their Medicaid uh, coverage. The problem becomes whether the process by which people are being asked to uh, uh tell whether they qualify, the paperwork they have to submit uh, may in fact uh, get lost in the mail. Uh, there could be mistakes made, bureaucracy could get in the way. So there's concern that some people are gonna lose that safety net when they, when they shouldn't. 
Yeah, the Medicaid rules have really swelled in Georgia since the pandemic began. Uh, my colleague Ariel Hart has a really helpful story on this, and she said that in March 2020, at the beginning of the pandemic, something like 2.1 million Georgians were on Medicaid. That swelled to 2.8 million uh, last month, or sorry, in March of, of 23. Um, so a, a big increase. Um, and there is, as you mentioned, a question of how many people might lose coverage. I mean, some may no longer qualify for that program, uh, but there might be bureaucracy, as you mentioned, that could get in the way and cause people to get kicked off, even if they do still qualify for the program. Uh, most of these people on Medicaid are poor children, but there's some that are new moms, elderly people, uh, adults who are federally designated as disabled. And these are among some of the most vulnerable people in the state. Um, so when it comes to things like paperwork, um, that might be a harder push in terms of even finding who, who these folks are and making sure that the word gets out. So it's an enormous undertaking, and we'll see how it goes. Kendra? Yeah, I agree with everything that Tamar said. And I think here's the thing for me. Um, we know that uh, with the pandemic um, and the loss of jobs, um, food insecurity, all those types of things that went into um, the, it went into the last three years, some people have moved. So some of these notifications are going to dwelling places that are no longer occupied by the recipient. Um, so when you're talking about some of these vulnerable groups and um, susceptible groups, I think that this would be an opportunity to use um, channels of communication, including social media, to get the word out. Because what we know, especially about, um, you know, some of these newer moms, these younger uh, people that are impacted by this, um, they are using social media. So I, I think there's a wraparound opportunity with this using local churches, community centers, and things like that to, to ensure the word. At the same time, um, I think with Governor Kemp's uh, recent freeze on spending, which was more astronomical than anyone imagined, um, this, if you will, redacting from the roles and recertification process, um, the timing of it, um, some would, would say is perfect, um, but I am concerned about the lease of these children um, who could be impacted by this. Chuck, there's probably, uh, Chuck Williams, clearly if people no longer really qualify to be on Medicaid, then th that's reason why they should be reevaluated. The, the problem, as Kendra just pointed out, is that I think a lot of people look at the state of Georgia as not being terribly friendly about expanding Medicaid in the first place and looking for opportunities to reduce the roles, which may be unfair, but certainly is in the background of all this, I think, Chuck Williams. I think you're absolutely right, Bill. And to play off what Kendra said, you know, she said a lot of them have moved. A lot of them have been, have been evicted. Um, if you look at eviction rates down in this part of the state, they're high. And those are some of the people that are on Medicaid. And, you know, so what what Kendra's saying about using alternative ways to notify folks is not only smart, it's compassionate. It makes sense. I mean, if you, and, you know, I don't know what the numbers are here in Muskogee County, but I suspect they're pretty high. So I, I thought what Kendra said was very interesting. Chuck Cook? Well, perhaps the governor could do a TikTok video to get the word out uh, about this. That would be quite entertaining. Um, but uh, it's, uh, it's, <laughs> sorry, I just had to make a joke because it just seems so entertaining with social media and everybody's using TikTok. 
Um, the uh, the Medicare issue, though, is one that that both the state needs to look at again. I mean, how are we handling people that are so poor uh, that they need this help? Why is that still happening in a state that declares itself number one for business? What can we do to lift people out of poverty in ways uh, that they're not dependent on this going forward? Uh, that's the initiatives I'd like to see our legislature working on this next session and not worried about you know giving a $10 tax break to somebody uh, on their taxes next year. Well, Chuck, this also folds into the conversation we had earlier about immigration. President Biden has proposed that um, that uh, uh, I think it's dreamers, among others, uh, should be eligible for uh, health care benefits, which is something that had not been the case previously. Correct. That is correct. I mean, nobody who's undocumented receives Medicare, period. End of story. Nobody who's undocumented receives any public benefits, period. End of story. Their U.S. citizen children might, but they are, in fact, U.S. citizens. Uh, dreamers are, are interesting because about 95% of them are actually employed, and many of them probably have insurance for their employment. Uh, those that aren't employed are probably stay-at-home moms with, with their kids. Uh, but these are, these are people that are not going anywhere. Did you know that we're, we're down from a high of almost a million dreamers in America to about 550,000? What happened to them? Most of them got green cards through marriage. That's that's what ends up happening when you have uh, end up having a, a lawful status. Uh, and because we haven't added any new dreamers since 2017 because of the lawsuits that have been going on. Uh, but that's a component that we need to look at because these these people and their people, they're not just kids. I have dreamers that are 40 years old. They're not going anywhere. They're never going to be deported. They're never leaving the United States. They are as American as you and I. Why aren't we talking about that reality when it comes to benefits like this, like Medicare? All right. Um, thank you for that, uh, all of you. Um, Chuck Williams, uh, before we, we finish today, I think we really need to talk about this, I think, remarkable story is a fair way to say it, about a name change at uh, what is, I think, Georgia's premier military installation. Talk about what is happening what happened last week at Fort Benning when it was renamed, and for the first time ever, a couple to a military family uh, has been given the honor of, uh, of having a fort named in their honor. Chuck? It is now Fort Moore. It's the same place where Fort Benning used to be. It is Fort Moore. It's named for Lieutenant General Hal Moore and his wife, Julia. They were made famous in the book, We Were Soldiers Once and Young, by that was written by General Moore and famed war correspondent Joe Galloway. It was turned into a movie by Randall Wallace, who did Braveheart with Mel Gibson starring General Moore. Here's the thing. It is the only fort in the United States that is named for a military company. The narrative the entire time leading up to it by the people at Fort Moore was this fort will honor the military family, the sacrifice and services that a family makes. And here's what Julia Moore did. And some people have questioned Julia Moore's name on this fort. The kids told me the Moore children who pushed this said, it was never Fort Halbert. It started out as Fort Julia Moore. In 1965, when the 7th Cav went to Vietnam and got into the Battle of Idrain Valley, which the book and the movie were about, 
270 plus soldiers killed over three days. One, the first big bloody battle of Vietnam. You know how they notified most of those families were in Columbus, a large percentage of them, because the U.S. Army kicked the families off post and made them get private housing as soon as their husbands deployed. The U.S. Army sent a telegram to Columbus, Georgia. A Columbus, Georgia taxi driver picked up that telegram and delivered it to the widow. That's how the United States Army notified next of kin. Julia Moore went nuts. She single-handedly changed the Army's notification process to a more humane, more reasonable way of informing people whose relatives had just paid the ultimate sacrifice. There's no question Julia Moore was an advocate for military families. And when you look at this, and I've covered it extensively for months, it's all I've done for the last couple of weeks. It, what the U.S. Army did, and I heard a number of people inside and outside the Army say this time the Army got it right. They got it right to honor military families. I talked to a group of spouses, and they were so happy to see through Julia Moore's name, their service and their sacrifice being honored by the U.S. Army. So that's pretty much Tomorrow, it. <laughs> Tomorrow, to pick up on that story, when, when Julia Moore realized how families were being notified, she herself began accompanying the taxi drivers to the homes of spouses who were notified through the telegram uh, that their spouse had uh, died in Vietnam. Uh, so she was a remarkable figure. And, and Tamar, uh, Major General Curtis Buzzard, who's the commander of now Fort Moore, said this, together Hal and Julia Moore embody the very best of our military and the very best of our nation. By honoring them, Fort Moore recognizes the sacrifices of all veterans, especially highlighting those from Vietnam, but it also reinforces the important role Army spouses and families play in the success of our military. It's kind of remarkable to think of that very human approach that was taken in naming the fort now for the Moors. Yeah, it's a beautiful story. And Chuck just telling us about it brought some tears to my eyes. Um, pardon, my, uh, pardon my dogs, but... Um, yeah, a, a nice story to come out of a, a really politically tortuous debate over Confederate uh, monuments and naming stuff after Confederate generals. Yeah, we should point out, uh, Kendra, uh, without going into it in detail, uh, that Fort Benning was named for a, a Confederate who was a slave owner, uh, who was militaristic. Uh, Chuck Williams, I think, said he never actually was in a battle himself. Uh, but it, there's always been questions as to why a fort would be named after someone who had no actual active uh, experience in fighting in wars. Um, this seems to correct here in Georgia, as is happening in other forts, uh, a terrible wrong. Yeah, I think it takes time, but I think it was Dr. King said the, the arc of the moral universe always will bend towards justice. And so I think this is a, a win for justice. All right. Kendra King Maman, you get the last word in today's Political Rewind. And it's so nice to end with such a positive 
story. Kendra, Chuck Cook, Tamar Hallerman, Chuck Williams, thank you so much for a terrific conversation today. Back with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. Please be good to one another. Bye, everybody. <laughs>